Chapter One of A Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One of the Falconer. Previous to the instructions I am to deliver concerning hawks, I shall briefly point out the qualities necessary in the person who is to manage them. He ought then to be of great strength to bear the fatigue of ascending hills, wading over rivers, pressing through thickets, and of surmounting the other difficulties that may lie in his way. Agility is also requisite, that he may be able to attend his hawks in their flight and to serve them with game while they are hanging over his head in the air in keen expectation of it. As they will often outfly his utmost speed, his voice should be clear and loud and in order to be heard at a distance and bring them back to the destined scene of diversion. They demand great regularity in their food and exercises, and that he may be seldom tempted to neglect it. He must be methodical and temperate in his way of living. His love of the sport must be very intense to animate him to undergo, undaunted, the numberless inconveniences of attendance, weather and soil wherewith it is generally accompanied. This will make it his main pleasure to be always with his hawks, training them to obedience, correcting their faults, and consulting their health and beauty. To do these things effectually, he must understand their temper and constitution, and ought to possess much patience and mildness in their application of his knowledge. Hawks, under the management of a man thus qualified, will be always in good order for flying, exhibit the greatest boldness and address in chasing their prey, give the highest pleasure to the beholders of their motions, and do just honor to the skill and attention of their keeper. Strength, agility, keenness, and diligence which are indispensably necessary to the menial falconer, ought also to be found in the gentleman whom he serves. They enable him to bear his part in the sport with becoming manliness, to derive from it all the amusement it can give, and to overawe his servants into the regular and honest discharge of his duty. When the master is ignorant of or inattentive to his hawks, his falconer must be uncommonly skillful and diligent, if they are always ready when he wants them. But if, on the contrary, he be idle, lazy, and careless, he will assign as little as he can of his time and thoughts to his business, depending for impunity on his master's negligence, or on the excuses which he has prepared to impose on his ignorance. The hawks, fed with unseasonable or unwholesome meals, lose their spirit and vigor, and deprived of the regular exercise, forget their obedience, and neglected in their natural and artificial psychic contract diseases which terminate in death. Thus a gentleman who does not understand or does not look after his hawks may throw away much money on them without ever receiving any recreation from them by reason of his own thoughtlessness and the knavery of his servant. As this reason puts the sport of hawking itself out of his power, at least in its full perfection, so a tender, delicate, feeble constitution and a timorous, apprehensive, nice turn of mind will render him utterly incapable of enjoying it, were it in his power even in its highest excellence. If a person of this frame suffer a fit of keenness for the sports of the sky to hurry him through all their toils, he runs great danger of overfatiguing himself and thereby destroying his health. And if, on the other hand, his mind is occupied in the consideration of all the bad consequences which may arise from them. His fears exclude all enjoyment.
while the sinewy sons of the field bound light as deer over every obstacle in the way of their diversion the cautious valetudinarian picks his steps calculating the probabilities of his death if he strain his relaxed nerves to equal the jovial career of his fleet companions the moment that the mountain's brow offers itself to his ascent the fancy toil makes his lungs work in heaving pantings already he thinks his burst blood vessels are pouring out their purple contents at his mouth and the dread of death almost puts a period to his life the murmuring brook which opposes itself to his progress swells in his imagination to a roaring torrent and grows more chillingly cold than the sharpest blast of the north straight his teeth chatter his breast trembles throbbing his flesh creeps on his bones his voice seems hoarse his blood is fevered and to save his life he turns away from the hideous rill when he arrives at the edge of the meadow flooded with the rains of winter the fight strikes him with horror the echoing shouts of the company whom he beholds with astonishment at their temerity dashing fearlessly through it in vain encourage him to follow he fancies the quagmire under the water his deluded eyes represent it rising and shrinking under their weight now he thinks himself up to the chin in the mud just going to be swallowed now he labors for breath oppressed by the terrors of imagined suffocation in short a man of slenderness and timidity ought never to think of hawking but in very fine weather and where he can take it his station at the summit of a dry hill whence he may command a view of some miles around him and see throughout the space whatever flights are made by the falcons end of chapter one chapter two the treaty of modern falconry by james campbell this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two of the implements of falconry having given an idea of a skillful falconer the implements of his profession come next under consideration these are hoods jesses varvels leashes creances lures tubs coping irons gloves blocks and chamber perches of each in its order the hood is a covering fitted easily to the hawk's head neatly made of leather enlivened with two circular bits of velvet one on each side representing eyes and rising up with the stalk about an inch in height which is terminated in a small tuft of feathers it is very ornamental to the bird and the use of it is to darken her that she may not bait from the fist as she is apt to do when barefaced and thus hurt her wings jesses are narrow straps of leather five or six inches long fastened to the hawk's legs close to the feet and when held by the falconer serve to keep her steady on his fist varvels are small silver rings bound to the end of the jesses marked with his name who owns the hawk and inform those who find her straying where she is to be sent back the leashes are thongs about two feet long inserted into the varvels with buttons at the ends to hinder them from running through altogether and their use is to secure the hawk on the falconer's fist by their being wound about his fingers or to tie her up to her block the creances are lines between twenty and thirty fathoms long knit to the leashes when you would prevent haggards that are for the first time entered at game from flying quite away but used to entangle other hawks 
in order that they may not carry off their quarry. The lure consists of leather stuffed with feathers, resembling the body of a fowl, with the real wings of a drake or grouse, made fast to its sides, and flung on a thong. This delusion, whirled about the falconer's head, or thrown up into the air, imposes on the hawks, and brings them more readily within his reach than they would have otherwise come. The tub is a flat vessel about four inches deep, which is set by the block whereon the hawk sits, and filled with water for her boosing and bathing. The coping irons are a kind of pincers with sharp edges for paring the beaks, pounces, and talons of the hawk, when they are overgrown and so become incommodious to her. The glove worn by the falcon on the left hand is much larger and thicker than any other ordinary gloves, and that in order to save his hand from being torn by the hawks as he feeds them or carries them in the field. The block is a solid piece of wood, shaped like a sugar loaf, with the six upper inches broken off, whereon the hawk perches, being tied to it by the leash, which goes through the last link of a small iron swivel fixed in its side. The chamber perch resembles one of the leaves of a folding screen. It consists of two pieces of wood, four feet high, joined together, at the top with a bar three feet long, and supported erect by a bit of wood nailed to each of the lower ends, in a contrary direction to the bar, which connects them above and covered over from top to bottom, with coarse canvas tacked to their sides. This frame stands in a dining room or in any other to which much company resort, and hawks being set on it become the sooner tame or many, pluming and dressing themselves by candlelight before the people who are by them. The leash is fashioned short around the upper bar on which the birds are perched, and the use of the canvas is to assist any one of them which happens to fall down to get up again to her place, by catching hold of the threads and turning herself up again. It is to be particularly observed that dogskin dressed with alum is preferable to every other kind of leather in the implements of falconry, as it is known by experience to be tougher than any other, and so least apt to be torn by the hawks. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 The Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Spaniels the small breed of spaniels called King Charles are excellent for hawking, but because these dogs cannot hold out long in the ranging, on account of their diminutiveness, others of somewhat a larger size are to be preferred. The Scottish and English spaniels are strong enough to bear any fatigue, and in this respect have the advantage of the kinds I have just mentioned. But as they are too large to pass through the cover with ease and expedition of the former, they are, for this reason, less eligible. The management of the dogs in the field is easily understood. They must all be taught to stand still at the crack of a short whip, which the falconer carries about with him for the purpose, and to range through the cover at his accustomed whistle and call. Their obedience in the first case is absolutely necessary when the hawk's head is outward, because she would miss any game they chance to spring when her fight was in a wrong direction. They are, therefore, to stop till her head be inward again, and whenever this happens, are in the second case, to obey directly the signals by which they are ordered to traverse the cover again, that she may be observed as soon as possible. Good dogs make good hawks, 
for it ruins a hawk to hover on her wings too long, vainly waiting for her prey, by not being instantly served. Besides the spaniels, a setting dog is necessary. Whenever he makes a set, the hawk is to be put to a high place above him. And when you see her there, and her head right in, you are to run in and raise the birds before the dog in order to serve her. This gives great advantage to a hawk on her being, for the first time entered, as it enables her to dart directly down on her prey, whereby she hardly ever misses it, and thus acquired new spirit and confidence in her attacks. But if, after all, she should miss it, the spaniels, being for this end ready uncoupled, are to be hunted into the cover immediately, to retrieve or spring it again. It is to be observed that high-flying hawks are not to be chased out of the hood from your fist, because this management will soon make them forget going to their stately gait altogether. The speedy, rank-winged hawk is the proper one for chasing, for she never goes to a high gait, but, depending on the force of her wings, pursues her prey in its own track, and seldom ever fails to kill it. She is more bloody than the high flyer, but this last affords pleasanter sport. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 The Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of hawks, and of the familiarity between them and the falconer and his dogs, there is a great variety of hawks in the world, but I propose to treat only those which the sportmen use in this island. These are the falcon and tersal gentle, the goshawk and the tersal, the jeer falcon and jerkin, the merlin and jack merlin, the sparhawk and musket, the laner and laneret, the saker and sakeret. Before I proceed to the consideration of the hawks here enumerated, let me recommend it to the falconer to cultivate a familiarity in his hawks with himself and his spaniels. The way to bring about this familiarity is to be both himself and his dogs with them as constantly as possible. The dogs ought always to be present when he feeds and exercises them. They should be habituated to lie by them, both when they are in their mew and on their blocks. The benefit of this familiarity is that they will attend closely to the falconer and the dogs in the field, and direct their own motions in the air by those they observe these make below. I have seen hawks so familiar as to sit on a dog while he slept, and plume and dress themselves in that situation. Also, when the dog catches the partridge by surprise, I have seen a hawk come down, seize him by the head, and take the fowl out of his mouth. The dogs grow fond of the hawks, and never resent any freedoms of this kind which they take with them. It were of advantage to have the spaniels taught to fetch and carry, for many partridges are killed by the dogs in the cover, and lost for one of their being accustomed to bring their master the game they thus destroy. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 The Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the choosing of the falcon gentle, this bird has received the epithet of gentle, on account of her mildness and easiness to be reclaimed. No hawk exceeds her in strength according to her size, or is hardier to endure fatigue. She is excellent to sport with at either field or brook. It is an observation applicable to all hawks that they prove bold or cowardly according as they are first quarried or taught. An error 
which some falconers have advanced, comes to be confuted in this place. They say that hawks taken from the airy, before they are full-summed and hard-penned, will have their wings imperfect at their best, their legs crooked and their train, long feathers, and flags full of taints. To this error I oppose experience on the contrary, for I have taken hawks from the airy, covered only with downs, which, by being fed with newly killed hot meat, drove their feathers, and were, when fully summed and hard, as strong and proved as good as any I've ever had from the airy full driven. In choosing hawks you will take notice that small falcons and large turtles are ever more of the best. The characters of a good hawk are a large black eye, a round head, wide nares, a short thick beak, a high neck, a round fleshy breast, broad-shouldered, sails full side long, large thighs, strong arms, large feet, black pounces, long wings crossing the train, and a long train. End of chapter 5「The Treaty of Modern Falconry » by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the names of hawks according to their different ages. Falcons have different names according to their different ages. As Ias, Ramage Hawk, Soar Hawk, Mute Hawk, and Slender Hawk. All these hawks have different plumes and colors according to the different countries where they are bred. Some, for instance, are dark and russet. They also differ in their dispositions, some being, for instance, better for the field and others for the river. As to their names, they are called Iases, while they continue in the Eyrie. Some falconers are against hawks from the Eyrie, because, say they, while they are young, they are troublesome in feeding and cry much, and when they are grown, it is difficult to enter them. This objection is of little weight for they will take new-killed hot meat without any trouble, and never cry, if you feed them often enough with it. By this management they become exceeding manny, easy to be entered, and, when well quarried, the best hawks for either the field or the river. The ramage hawk is the name by which the ias is known, after she leaves the eyrie, and during the months of June, July, August, Hawks are of this age turn out excellent birds when properly reclaimed. The sore hawk is the name which the ramage hawk passes by the months of September, October, and November. The feathers with which she leaves the eyrie she keeps till the ensuing year when they are mewed. They are called sore feathers. The sore hawk changes this name at the end of November and receives that of carvest, which she has known during the months of December, January, February, March, April and the half of May, being then carried on the fist. Some falconers represent hawks of this age as very great baiters, and therefore little eaters, as frequently troubled with philander worms, and are rarely brought to be good for anything. Experience confutes this opinion, by which it is certain that there is no other difference than age between them and those taken in the months of September and October. It is the falconer's fault if they bait, for he ought not to set them barefaced on their blocks, as, in that condition, irreclaimed hawks will bait in any month. 
As for the philander worms, the medicines to be afterwards mentioned will show they may be easily prevented or cured. Carvis, therefore, it is evident, may be rendered as good as any hawks, whatever, by proper care to reclaim them. The carvist in the middle of March begins to be called a mute hawk, or enter mew, which name she retains till the end of September. During this period she casts her feathers and gets a new coat. Some falconers object to her, that she is hardly to be trusted and must be on that account be kept hard under. They are right, if she was not entered the year proceeding. But if she killed plenty of game, then she is easily made manny from the mew and turns out to be the best of all hawks. A hawk which has not been entered at game the first year will never afterwards prove good for anything. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 The Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the proper method of hooding hawks which have an aversion to it from harsh usage. Hawks are apt to take an aversion to their hoods when they are forced on them roughly and unskillfully at first. The impatient falconer confirms their aversion by persisting in the same violent method whereby he first raised it so that there is a contention between him and his hawk every time he is going to hood her. Vexatious to his own mind and prejudicial to her health. In order to reconcile her to the hood, observe the following plain directions. When at any time, whatever, you carry her on your fist, hang on your little finger of the same hand a hood remarkable for the brightness of its color, that it may be the better catch her attention. Let it hinge there for a week never permitting the hawk to see it during that period in your right hand, and accustomed her to feed close by it. The next week you may venture to take the hood softly in your right hand and play it gently about her meat as she is feeding, now and then slightly touching her with it. This done, you will return it to your finger again where you hung it before in her sight, till you are ready to feed her. When you have brought her this way to endure it, you will move it easily on her meat which you must hold on your left hand and seem as if you wanted to hinder her from eating. You will now observe that her aversion is decreased by her striving to keep it off and feed beside it. Then take a little bit of meat in your left hand and holding the hood by the tassel on the right just over it. Provoke her by the sight of the flesh to press it through the openings of the hood. When you have made her so familiar with the hood as to feed through it, without any signs of fear, you may augment this familiarity by drawing it over or shaking it about her meat yet more freely. As her aversion is now almost gone, you may bear the hood a little against her while she feeds through it. And you will find that in her eagerness to eat, she will thrust her head into it altogether and withdraw it of her own accord. When she hoods herself in this manner, let her eat freely till she has done with her food, and let the hood remain on her till you are next to feed her. By the following method you will in less than a month bring her to hood herself by the least bit of meat without any trouble. This course is tedious indeed, but it will ever again gain its end, whereas bobbing or struggling rends the hawk forever impatient of the hood. You will take notice that even this method will be ineffectual. If you begin it, when the hawk's stomach is weak, because it is by the sharpness of her appetite that her dislike of the hood is to be overcome, 
all the gentleness and care is to be observed at first to weaken her fears and when she is once formed to your mind she will with very little attention continue so end of chapter seven chapter eight the treaty of modern falconry by james campbell this librivox recording is in the public domain of the falcon gentle from the eyrie having these forty years past kept hawks i hope it will not be regarded as presumption to declare that hawks bred from the eyrie are preferable to any whatever which are taken wild it is with hawks as with all creatures those which are taken early from their dams into the care of man must become much more tractable and affectionate than such as are catched wild which after all our care to tame them show a strong disposition to regain their former uncontrolled liberty this is evidently the case with regard to all haggards by which term is denoted all hawks taken by art from the sky in contradistinction to those that are reared from the eyrie in order to obtain such a hawk as i am recommending you are to visit the eyrie frequently the last week of may that being the time when iases begin to get their feathers you are not to take them till you see their feathers almost driven and able to bear them from the nest for if you carry them away in the down they are in danger of contracting a disagreeable habit of shrieking which is not easily broken if may however be broken by very high feeding which is also necessary at this time to raise them to their full strength and beauty when you think the eyes is just far enough to be driven to be taken away you are to put them in a broad basket and cover them with a cloth that the darkness may hinder them from moving and breaking their feathers but if they are too far driven to be caught with your hand and branch from the eyrie to other parts of the rock you are to let down a flag net before them wherein they will be immediately entangled when you see them fast let the net drop down if the bottom below them be safe fall on otherwise let them down as quickly as you can by the cord i have several times catched them this way even ten days after they have left the eyrie end of chapter eight chapter nine the treaty of modern falconry by james campbell this librivox recording is in the public domain of the treatment of young hawks when first taken from the eyrie when you have got your hawks you are to put them into the mew which is a house designed chiefly for feeding hawks the second year from march to september at which time they get a new coat while they are here you are to visit them at least three times a day with hot new killed meat such as hawks naturally prey on the food they are fondest of is pigeons small birds rats mice hare rooks and chickens for a falconer ought to imitate nature as nearly as he can in training them you are to set small blocks in a mew for them to perch on and to spread soft hay around the blocks whereon they may rest on their breast in the night as young hawks always do till their legs are strong enough to carry their weight when you enter the mew with their food present it to them hollowing at the same time ho 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 as falconers do and this hollowing are you to observe as often as you feed them by pursuing this method for a few days they will come to your fist on their own accord and feed boldly and in two or three weeks will follow you through the mew when you see your hawks driven full length in their feathers 
You are to have jesses, bewits, bells, and varvels in readiness, and to flip them softly on some darkish evening while they are feeding most eagerly, and not minding what you are about. You may then flip on their hoods also, but be sure they be easy and deep behind, that they may not pinch their heads, and made so as to draw close and easy below. For, if the hood was already observed, frighten or hurt them at first, they will take a dislike at it which cannot be removed without much pains and trouble. You are therefore to carry them always on your fist in the day, frequently hooding and unhooding them by candlelight, and giving them a bit of meat when you pull off the hood, and flipping it on again while they are feeding. This treatment you must give them for several days, and as your hand will be their perch during that time, they will become quite tame and manny. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10. The Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the training of young hawks to the lure. Now that your hawks come eagerly to your fist and feed on it fearlessly, you are to train them to the lure, which ought to be a German one, so large and heavy as that they will not be able to drag or carry it away. For these are among the worst faults that hawks can have. In order to prevent these faults, you are to feed your birds on your hand or on the lure, or on the heck. And it is either in one or other of these three ways, only you are to feed them for the first year. Beware also never to throw them their meat as they are either flying or sitting on their blocks. Never to snatch their food hastily from them as they are feeding. Never to come upon them by surprise when they are on their quarry yourself, or horses, or dogs. It is during the first year they are aptest to contract the faults I am here putting you on your guard against. But to return to the luring of them, when they come readily to the lure in the mew, and feed on it, and are well acquainted with, and obedient to your voice, carry them out on a very calm day to the most extensive plain that lies near you. Take at the same time, along with you, a person who understands the hooding and unhooding of hawks, and having carried yours to the field, let him take his station about the middle of it and slacken the hood of one of them, then go yourself to the distance of a hundred yards from him, toss the lure around your head, and hollow with your usual tone, having previously ordered your companion to unhood the hawk, as soon as he hears your voice. You will find that then the hawk will fly straight for the lure, which he must throw out to her, and, as this is the first time of her being lured in the field, you must have a piece of pigeon or chicken fixed to the lure and that she may not be disappointed in her expectations. Next you are to lure at a still greater distance, which she must gradually increase, till you go as far as to be just within her sight, or hearing, and at all distances you will find her eager for the lure. This exercise you are to give her daily at nine o'clock in the forenoon, and at four o'clock in the afternoon, till you enter her at the polting, which begins on the twelfth day of August, and, though she was brought from the eyrie only in the first week of June, proceeding, you will find her grown, even in a short time, strong enough to kill any more fowl whatever. End of chapter 10